Welcome to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I'm Keely Heron. I'm Pat Wright. And on today's episode of Opera for Everyone, we are listening to Don Carlos by Giuseppe Verdi. And what... Oh, we need... We, there's, 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 there's a lot to talk about here. I know that. Oh. I know that you were like waist deep in history on this one, Pat. <laughs> so true. In fact... So much history, I didn't want to risk overdoing it in one of our normal podcast lengths. So this is our first ever extended version podcast of a historical opera, an option for those who enjoy a lot of historical context and explanation around the historical events depicted in the opera. So yes, I was waist-deep in history, and also waist-deep in the various versions of this opera. First of all, we should point out that if you see it written Don Carlos with an S, it's en français. En français because the premiere of this opera was given at the Paris Opera. This is the the premier opera house in Paris mm-hmm. in 1867 and it is in fact a grand opera. Mm, what does that mean? Well, a grand opera, it's a form of opera that was perfected by the French under Meyerbeer. Meyerbeer? Oh, you know, it's interesting. He was a force to be reckoned with. He dominated the scene at the Paris Opera for, for a long time. Was during he a conductor? N- he was a composer. Meyerbeer. Never heard of him. Well, that's because his operas were huge spectacles, but most people agree that they don't have the musical quality of someone like a Verdi Mm. or a Bizet or the people that we we keep in the repertoire from. So he's like the Barnum and Bailey of opera. The one that remains from his great productions is the Huguenots, and sometimes that is performed. But it's not terribly frequent because they are such a spectacle to mount. Oh, so they're difficult to stage because there's just a lot going on. Well, let me give you a few elements of Grand Opera. You have to have a number of elements for it to qualify, and Verdi had to comply with these as well. First of all, it had to be in French. Oh. It had to have a five-act structure uh-huh. instead of the more typical three Mm-hmm. three-act structure that you might find at the Comédie Française or the Théâtre Italien, all places that different Italian composers would present their works, as well as composers from other countries. A grand opera is all going to be on a large scale, has a full orchestra, full chorus, huge cast, with huge vocal range represented and expected. Wow. Grand opera typically has historical narrative as its basis. Ah, okay. Or at least as a jumping off point. Okay. It's melodramatic. Even better if it includes some serious violence. Okay. Somewhere during the opera, there will be a tableau vivant. Is that like a, kind of like a ballet? No, the tableau vivant is like a living picture. In other words, it almost looks like it's such a feast for the eyes. and it's Oh, it's so almost like a painting. Exactly. Ah. It must also include grand spectacle. And because it's French, you know what it's going to need. A ballet. A ballet. (laughs) In act two or three, it's expected that there will be a ballet. So that's a lot of requirements. 
It is. And so that's the French have determined that that's how they define a grand opera? Well, it was the standard set by Meyerbeer, and people were expected to live up to that. But Verdi had trouble with this opera to keeping it down to size because there were also time requirements. It could be long, but only so long. You couldn't start before 7 p.m. because... People had to have dinner. After all, right. a, night, a night out <laughs> needs dinner first. Of course. And they had to be out of the theater by midnight because the last trains back to the suburb left about 12.35. I see. So those were absolutes constraining on each end. Interesting. And, and he was hard-pressed once he added all these bits in. Because the other thing I didn't say, that there were going to be choral works and arias and duets and different musical forms represented in... Are there, are there any duels? Are there any fight scenes? Uh, there's some swordplay. Nice. But there's also an auto de fe. What is that? We'll get to it. Okay. <laughs> Just hang on to it. That that there is your spectacle and your violence. So. Verdi did have to work to cut this down for the premiere in 1867, and it was successful. And immediately after that, he worked on getting it translated into Italian. Mm-hmm. from the French, and he did other shifting around, cuts. One of the challenges of this opera is that there are so many versions of it that Verdi worked with. Most people will point at the French version that premiered in 1867, and then also a an Italian version that premiered in Milan in the 1880s. Mm-hmm. But there are other bits along the way, and some of the cuts that Verdi made the details of those elements that were cut have been located and reinserted into the opera by various people putting on the productions. So it's really interesting if you try to look at a definitive version of this opera. I don't know that that it exists. One scholar I read argues for tilting towards the French because even the Italian versions are translations of the French because the French was how it was originally written. Sure. And along those lines, I should tell you... Who wrote the libretto, Pat? <laughs> yes. Joseph Marais and Camille Dulocle. Okay, so it was a team. But more importantly, they based it, and it's a fabulous libretto, they based it on Friedrich Schiller's play, Don ah, Carlos. Right, and who was Friedrich Schiller, and why was this play so important? Well, I mean, for Verdi it was important because it provided all the elements of drama and character that he was looking for. Friedrich Schiller was a poet, philosopher, historian, playwright, who is known for his great works in all of those areas. And he also had a very close friendship with the slightly older Goethe, who also wrote stories that inspired operas. For instance, all of the Faust-based operas that we have are based on Goethe's work. Is that, and I've heard of Goethe, but I've not read any of his works. And what were some of his famous works? Faust. Okay. There are at least four operas that still see performances today based on Goethe's Faust, the tragic play. For instance, The Damnation of Faust by Berlioz, Charles Gounod, our Romeo and Juliet composer, mm-hmm. wrote mm-hmm. a Faust. Uh, Boito wrote Mephistopheles. Boito, you may or may not recall, is the librettist who lured Verdi back out of retirement. Oh, at for the Aida. end of his. Nope, after Aida for Otello and Falstaff. Oh, okay. So he was, but he also composed this one opera, obviously 
handling the libretto himself. And there's also Dr. Faust, a 1916 opera by Buzzoni. And Schiller also writes a lot of plays that inspire operas. Verdi himself has at least three operas based on Schiller plays. Uh, Giovanna d'Arco is based on Jungfrau von Orléans, the maid of Orléans. Verdi also wrote Louisa Miller based on Schiller's Intrigue and Love. Rossini's William Tell is based on a Schiller play and Tchaikovsky based a maid of Orléans on the Schiller, same Schiller play that Verdi used, and Puccini, in part, based Turandot on the Schiller play. It's so fascinating, all of these interconnections, that we don't think about that when we go to see an opera, that all of these people were influenced by each other. Yes, and I'm going to say that it's really important to be conscious of this with Schiller, because when you look at this, if you compare it to what actually happened in history, you go, well, Verdi really messed this up. He's got a lot of things wrong here, and and maybe even some anachronistic things in this one particular character who's a bit of a a freedom fighter. (laughs) But it's because Schiller had sort of a romantic view, but he was also steeped in some of the ideals of the Enlightenment, Mm -hmm. which is far after the setting of this opera. Yeah, Yeah, this opera is set in approximately 1559. Mm -hmm. But Schiller's play was written in 1787. And so if you think of what was happening in Europe at the time, we were on the cusp of the French Revolution. We've had a lot of the great Enlightenment works written, and Schiller really believed in individual human liberty, human dignity, mm-hmm. and arguably the most important message he was trying to present here was his argument against absolutism, abuse mm-hmm. of power by powerful personages. Mm-hmm. And so the person he's particularly critiquing here is the king in our story, which is Philip II. Mm-hmm. We can talk more about Philip II. Does that ring any bells? Well, you reminded me that we recently did Ernani. Yes. And then that had some crossover characters. I, I do recall that there was Bachelor Number 1, Bachelor Number 2, and Bachelor Number 3. Yes. And Bachelor Number 1, I believe, was young and attractive, but not powerful or wealthy. Bachelor number two was old and wealthy, but not super wealthy. And bachelor number three was young and attractive and powerful and wealthy. Because he was the king. Because he was the king. And that was Charles I of Spain. Charles I. Of Spain, who at the end of the opera, he becomes Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor. Holy Roman Emperor, that's right. That's That was a big moment. And then he became magnanimous, which is a nice thing to have in your mind because he is... (laughs) He's represented by this large tomb of his, where a lot of the scenes take place in this opera, and he's remembered fondly. He's remembered as a great king. He is the father of Philip II, who is the king during the period of action in this particular opera, and Philip II is the father of Don Carlos, the title character of this opera. Okay, okay, okay. Does he have a Charles the whatever? title? He does not become king. He does not become king. Okay, and so he is not Holy Roman Emperor. Charles I was Holy Roman Emperor, and that was his grandfather. That's right. This Don Carlos's grandfather, exactly. Okay. But as I said before, because Verdi is basing his opera on the Schiller play, Philip II is the baddie here. So he's probably a base. He is. Actually, this is a fantastic opera for bases. There are three important roles for bass singers. So is this a good place actually to start talking about plot and set up our first piece of music, Pat? 
The bit of music that I played right in the beginning of the show is actually the introduction and prelude, one of the pieces of music that Verdi cut when he was looking for time to cut from the opera. But it eases us into a scene where the opera opens on a forest. And in the forest, we see a young woman with a hunting party. And in most productions, she, but not all (laughs) the directors can change things up, she encounters some people who are in need and she provides alms to them. From a corner, watching is a young man. And these are our two main love interests in the opera being introduced to us. Elizabeth of Valois. Mm -hmm. We're in the forests of Fontainebleau, which is the royal residence in France. And Don Carlos is watching her. She goes off stage and he lets us know what he's just observed and how he feels about it in our introductory song to Don Carlos here. It's called Je l'ai vu. I have seen her. listening to Opera for Everyone, and on today's episode we're listening to Don Carlos by Giuseppe Verdi, and we have just heard from our title character, Don Carlos, the Infante of Spain, and he has set his sights upon Elizabeth de Valois, and they are in Fontainebleau in France, and so I'm I'm a little confused, Pat, because we said that this was set in like the 1550s in Spain. It's mostly in Spain. Only Act 1 of 5 is in France. Okay. And, and that is because if you're a royal personage, you don't choose who you marry. 
it is arranged for you because these are political alliances. alliances. Right. And what good fortune. The political alliance has been set between Spain and France. Don Carlos is the eldest child of Philip II, mm-hmm. heir apparent, and he has been contracted to marry Elizabeth of Valois. And so there's been a delegation from Spain sent to France to meet and retrieve her and bring her back to Spain. Ah. So he kind of snuck in with the delegation because he wanted to check out this woman who he's supposed to marry. And that's why he's lurking behind the trees watching her. Right. Okay. So Don Carlos is set to marry Elizabeth of Valois. Yes. And what good fortune. He fell in love with her at first sight. How wonderful. Yeah, that's great. This does not sound like there's going to be any tension or drama or any problems whatsoever, right? Well, I, yes. <laughs> I, it, it is opera, so I'm waiting to see how this is going to go wrong if he's set to marry her and he falls in love with her. You won't have to wait long. But before we, we carry on with that, I have to pull back for a second and share a little history. Uh-huh. Don Carlos in Schiller's play in Verdi's opera is presented as this dashing romantic idealist. That is a fiction. The actual Don Carlos, son of Philip, was Carlos, Prince of Asturias, and he he was not he was not good marriage material. He was not good king material. He was famously known for his cruelty, especially to animals. Oh no. Yeah, I won't even go into some of the details. We'll leave it at horrific cruelty to animals and to people of lower classes, which is pretty much everyone when you're the king's son. He was not a good person. It's believed that he also had physical and mental problems. Right. And a lot of people chalk this up to the inbreeding of the Habsburgs. The Habsburgs were this ruling family. You may recall that Charles I, who becomes Charles V in Ernani, is a Habsburg, which is why he gets to be the Holy Roman Emperor. Yes. Just as an illustration of how inbred this family was. Carlos, our title character here, the one who in reality in history was a not a good person, and even Philip didn't want him to be king, even though he was the eldest son. Carlos had only four great-grandparents. How many great-grandparents do you have, Keely? I think there's eight. I also have eight. <laughs> Everyone I know has eight. But yeah, he... four is not very many. Four is not very many, and his maternal grandmother and his paternal grandfather were siblings. His maternal grandfather and his paternal grandmother were siblings. Yikes. Two of his great-grandmothers were also siblings. It gets worse as you go further back. For example, with great-great-grandparents, most people typically have 16. Mm -hmm. He only had six. Wow. So not a big gene pool. Jeepers. That's... Yeah, that's a little bit troubling. Right. That was problematic. How did his father turn out? Was his father mostly normal? Philip II? Well, Schiller might tell you no, but he was well-placed. Philip II was king of Spain during the Golden Age of Spain. And it's a literal Golden Age besides artistic flowering because they had all that gold flowing in from the New World. Right. His, gr- his great-great-grandparents, Philip's great-great-grandparents, were Ferdinand and Isabella. I see, okay. The ones who 
financed the voyages to the New World, which led to conquests and mm -hmm. exploitation of this New World, which brought lots of gold and silver into their treasury. Philip was also king during the defeat of the Spanish Armada, so there was that. But that's after the time period of, of this story. Okay. All right, so Carlos was not a great guy. I just wanted to mention that, throw it out for the rest of the opera, because he's, he's young and handsome and heroic in the operatic version. This is where we are taking artistic liberties, or perhaps Schiller or Verdi were taking artistic liberties. Absolutely. Yeah. Back to the story. As luck would have it, just as he wraps up his song, letting us all know how much in love he is with this young woman and his good fortune, that this is going to be his bride, she wanders onto the scene. She's lost, oh no. Her page comes on and offers her assistance, but she meets this gentleman and says, who are you? And he says, oh me, I, I'm a Spaniard. Oh, you're with the king's delegation. Yep, that's right, that's what I am. I'm, I'm with the delegation, I sure am. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she confesses to him that she's really nervous. Like, What's this guy like I'm supposed to marry? What can you tell me about him? And he tells her a few things, but ultimately he pulls out a locket or, or a, a picture, a likeness of some sort, and he gives it to her, and she opens it up, and, and it's a little funny. And heart's a flutter. She looks at it, she looks at him, she looks at it, she looks at him. This is you! And he's like, yeah, it's me. <laughs> yes, I'm the guy in the picture, sure am. And we have a lovely duet between the two of them, because they've both... They're smitten. Fallen in love with each other.
listening to Don Carlos by Giuseppe Verdi, and we've just met the lovely Elizabeth de Valois, our leading lady, our love interest, who is, of course, a soprano. So we've learned a little bit about Don Carlos, both the fictional version and the more sadistic real version. And we're going to try to forget about the real version and focus on the fictional one for the who rest is, of the opera. Who is lovely and handsome and yes. normal and doesn't torture animals. But so what do we know about Elizabeth de Valois, his future queen? Well, she is the daughter of Henry II, king of France at this time. So it's an important dynastic blending with the son and the daughter of the two kings. But one thing I found very interesting, because she's such an important catch for any sort of alliance, she almost became Queen of England, and she might, in fact, have become Queen of France, if not for the Salic Law, which forbade women to inherit thrones. So she would have been, as the eldest daughter of Henry II, she would have been the obvious choice. If they had done succession the way the English did, for example, she would have been Queen of France. She was also contracted to be married to England's Edward VI, who you may or may not recall was the was the long sought after son of Henry VIII. Oh. So Jane Seymour, his third wife, ultimately did give him a son. Ah, yeah. And okay. he became king for a short period of time, but he died. He so was she, sick. He was sickly, wasn't he? He was not a well young man. Yeah. And he, so he was for a short time king of England, and she was contracted to be married to him. In fact, that's interesting because she is very Catholic. Edward was raised Protestant, of course, because right, he was the king of England. Any of Henry VIII's children, after he divorced Catherine of Aragon, his first wife, they are all Protestant because that's the whole bringing Protestantism to England happens with the Act of Supremacy in 1533. So 
the whole Protestant Catholic conflict in Europe will come up here, but we're not going to dwell on it now. Doesn't work out for her to become Queen of England. It's not yet an issue with France, but a lot of people will back her in spite of the Salic law when her father does die because the next person in line is a Protestant. It's a fascinating story for another time. So when she was contracted to marry Edward VI of England, Henry's son, who of course was raised Protestant, his mother was Jane Seymour, the Pope said, oh no, I will excommunicate you all because he didn't want this Catholic princess marrying a Protestant. Wow. Well, she's she is a, like I said, she was a prime catch in terms right. of dynastic politics. Yep. And the Pope wanted her to have nothing to do with this Protestant regime. Right. He, of course, had excommunicated Henry VIII. Yeah. Because of his break from the church. Sure. So Elizabeth is, in fact, contracted to marry the son of the King of Spain, Don Carlos of our opera. And just towards the end of their love duet, a cannon sounds and there is much celebrating because it is a celebratory indication that the peace treaty between France and Spain has been signed. And there's great celebrating in and amidst this fabulous celebration. The populace is always happy when war ends. Of course. After all, we opened on the people who were poor and suffering and war makes all of that worse. While this is going on, Count Lerma enters and he has great news to deliver. He says, your majesty, Princess Elizabeth, I have great news. I am here to conduct you back to Spain so that you can marry Philip II. What? Wait, what? <laughs> That's what they say. <laughs> Switcheroo. What ha What happened? Philip decides he wants to marry her. The alliance is too good and he wants her to be his bride. Doesn't he have a wife? Who's... No, she, his wife has died. He's had two wives previously. Ah. In fact, the wife that immediately precedes this was Mary I. Of England. Right, who was Catherine of Aragon's daughter. Ah. Who was the aunt of Charles V. See, it's all interwoven. Yes, yes, <laughs> they're all inbred. Right, right. I, I mean, when you... Like if you watch the Tudors or anything, you know that Catherine of Aragon has great supporters among the powerful in the Catholic establishment. Of course. Not least of which is the fact that her nephew is Charles V, bachelor number one from Ernani. <laughs> Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. Neither Philip II nor the Pope want England to be a Protestant country. Philip II has made it his life's mission to reclaim England for Roman Catholicism, carrying on what his grandparents had started to purify Europe and keep it Roman Catholic. Historically, we're told that Philip decides to marry Elizabeth of Valois for those dynastic reasons, and also because his son was not really marriage material. Although historically it is true he was originally contracted to marry her, Philip did switch it when he found himself without a wife because Mary I of England had died. So did these events happen in close timing? Oh my gosh. <laughs> For those of you listening, <laughs> Pat has just shown me a gigantic timeline because she is a opera nerd. Uh, 
gosh. Hang on, I'll tell you. I got this, I got this. Oh, gosh. So, so Philip II is married to Mary I of England, Catherine of Aragon's daughter, the one who takes the throne after her half-brother, Edward VI, has died. So she's married, she's married to Philip in 1554, and she dies in 1558. Oh, so for okay. the period of time between 1554 and 1558, Philip II is king, king consort of England. England, right, yeah. Yeah, and you remember you know, Mary, Bloody Mary, all that. Yes, they, yeah, there yeah, was yeah, yeah. a They tried very consciously to turn England back into a Catholic state. And ultimately it doesn't work because Mary is followed by Elizabeth I. Again, that's another story for another day. So... His second wife, Mary, had died in 1558, and he marries Elizabeth of Valois in 1559, so the next year. Okay. All right. Okay. So, hey, good news. We're going to Spain. You're going to marry this old guy. And she's like, what? Right. And in this opera, that's exactly the case. You're meant to think she's a young woman, but a grown woman. And Philip is this, always portrayed as this old base, just like... Oh, does she really have to marry him? They're not really a match. In reality, Elizabeth was 14 at the age of this marriage. Really? Really. And Philip was 32. So not, yeah, okay, still, you know, but (laughs) it's not like she's 19 and he's 60. Yes, which is how it is usually portrayed in the opera. Right, okay. Interestingly... Don Carlos, our title character, and Elizabeth are the same age. Okay. 14. Well, you know, think of Romeo and Juliet, right? Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. Star-crossed lovers. <laughs> but soft. So the act ends with the juxtaposing song of sadness that these two characters who have just sung this love duet now must sing because yeah. their dreams of being together have been smashed. Right. And that is juxtaposed with the the populace who is celebrating. In fact, there's a moment when Count Lerma says to Elizabeth, you're to marry Philip II, but he does not want to force you. He, He wishes your consent. And you think for a moment, okay, well, she can get out of this then. But the populace, particularly this chorus of women who are so suffering plead with her please marry him we need peace we need peace and in a very clear moment when she recognizes her duty she says yes i'll marry him right because she's the king's daughter she's she's been raised to know yeah she knows where what her marriage is all about exactly okay so far in our story don carlos is hiding in the woods sees this lovely woman sees her falls in love with her immediately she discovers him. She's like, oh, you're part of the Spanish group. <laughs> and he's like, yep, that's me. And then she's like, oh, but you're the king that I'm supposed to marry. Or you're the prince that I'm supposed to marry. And he's like, yep, that's me. And so they're like, oh, you're so cute. I love you. And then somebody comes in and says, okay, great. Now let's go back to Spain. You're going to marry the king. And she's like, needle on the record, like, what? Then what happens? Then we're done in France. Okay. End scene in France. Cut to... Act two, very different feeling, very Mm -hmm. different feeling. Yeah, because we were like in the woods and there's deer and there's love and light. And now we're back in Spain. Now we're back in Spain in act two and we are right by the tomb 
of Charles V. Holy Roman Emperor. Deceased Holy Roman Emperor. Bachelor number three. <laughs> yes. One thing to mention about Charles V is he stepped down from ruling. He abdicated because after a long life of service as king, he wanted to retreat to a monastery, the monastery of San Just, and he steps down in 1556 and dies, we are told, in 1558. The action of this play is taking place in 1559. So he's recently deceased. Yes. We open on Act Two with the monks of this monastery chanting, and you will hear an individual, particular old monk, also a bass, very imposing. here with the monks talking about Don Carlos is quite different. It's very serious. Serious and a little bit dark. Yes, and that one very insistent bass voice is an old monk and he wants everyone to know God alone is great. His bolts of fire make heaven and earth tremble. Merciful master, 
Bend over the sinner, grant his soul the peace and forgiveness that comes from heaven. And meanwhile, the monks are chanting, Charles V, august emperor, is nothing more than dust and ashes. Now his haughty soul trembles at the feet of the Lord. And the old monk, the solo bass that we're hearing, will remind us that the pride of Charles was great, but he's nothing more than dust and ashes, and only God rules. So we have a setting in this religious context of the monastery. And once this scene is set, and we've heard from these the chorus and this one character, Don Carlos will appear. And he will note that he's there at this monastery to honor his grandfather, Charles V. And he says, I search in vain for peace and to forget the past image of her. Because he's trying to deal with the fact that his father has married the woman he loves, the one that yeah. he thought he was going to get to marry. And the monk speaks to him and, and reminds him, the sorrows of the earth follow us even in this monastery. You will only find peace with God. So this is this recurring message that the monk wants to give. The old monk departs and Don Carlos lets us know. Oh, that voice, I shiver when I hear that voice. It was like I saw the ghost of the emperor. Mm -hmm. They say he still appears here. So we're all getting chills down our spine. Like, yeah. oh, that's a little weird. This guy who's in his tomb here. That moment passes and a young man comes in. The young man is the Marquis de Posa. Don Rodrigo. Yes, his title is Marquis de Posa. He is a good, good friend of Don Carlos. And he looks like a military man. So just as Carlos is about to embrace him as his old friend, Rodrigo formalizes the situation and says, I request an audience with the noble son of the king. And Don Carlos is like, uh, okay, what, what, what? He's like, that's me. Yeah, he says, my dear prince, I've been in Flanders with the army and I've come to intercede with you for that noble country, which has been bathed in blood. So wait, Flanders, is that like Belgium? Right, it's, an, it's the northern part of Belgium. Right, it is okay. part of the Spanish Netherlands. So after the Protestant Reformation, various parts of Europe had to contend with the pressures of religious tension of, are we going to be Protestant? Are we going to remain Catholic? And different areas will sort this out differently. And there is an age of religious wars that takes place. And this is smack in the middle of that age of religious wars. Mm -hmm. And the Low Countries, which include Belgium, Flanders, they're part of this contest. We, we can talk more about Flanders because it comes up in more detail later. But suffice it to say, again, this is part of Schiller's effort to make a point with this play. The Marquis de Posa is an invention. He is not a historical character. He is there to represent someone who can contest the absolutism of the king, someone who speaks up for people who are locked in combat with the king. Okay. The Marquis de Posa is fighting for Flanders to be allowed to determine its own fate. They are Protestant-leaning, and they are, this is significant too. They're very, they're very wealthy because of so much trade that goes through Flanders. Okay. So after Rodrigo tells Don Carlos that 
he needs to help Flanders. He notices his friend is not doing well. After all, he's just been singing about his heartbreak. Right. And he says, he says, what's wrong, my friend? He says, oh, I'm madly in love with someone. He goes, oh, that's rough. He goes, I'm madly in love with Elizabeth. And Rodrigo steps back and goes, your mother? Because that, that's how she's considered, right? right? She's married to his father. Right. And Rodrigo advises him wisely, get that out of your head. Nothing but trouble. You can't be in love with your mother. Well, and also you only have four grandparents <laughs> or four great grandparents, which would make things really weird. <laughs> this is um, this is not part of the opera, the, the bit about the great grandparents. <laughs> Rodrigo says, oh, my friend, you're suffering and I want to offer my consolation. Let us let us devote ourselves to something where we can actually make a difference, where it's actually productive. Where it's Moving actually the ball forward. <laughs> yes, where it's actually doable. And then they sing this fabulous duet together, The Oath. heard a lovely duet between Don Carlos, our title character, and his old friend Don Rodrigo, the Marquis de Posa, and they are discussing the importance of pledging their efforts to help Flanders. What else do we need to know about Flanders, Pat? 
Mostly you need to know that it is the representation here of the religious wars in the Low Countries where Spain was trying to impose its will and brook no opposition. Shortly after this period of time, part of the Low Countries is going to separate and you're going to get north, which becomes the United Provinces of the Netherlands, better known as the Dutch Republic. And in the south, you'll have the Spanish Netherlands, which includes what we now call Benelux, really. Right. Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg. But this is an area of war for quite a period of time. And Posa is a character who represents the ideals of the Enlightenment, human dignity for the individual. And part of what they sing about in this pledge is their love of liberty. And they say, God, who has made our sincere hearts, the hearts of two brothers, receive our oath. We will die in brotherly love. So they pledge themselves to this cause. And that's the end of the first scene in Act Two. In the second scene of Act Two, we're outside the monastery in the terrace. And it's all the ladies of the court waiting outside because only the queen, Elizabeth, is allowed to go in to say her prayers. And in the beginning of this scene out outside the monastery in the sunlight, we see all the ladies of the court and we are introduced to a character who's going to play an important role later in the story. Princess Eveli was in fact a historical figure at the court of Philip II, though probably not exactly in the way she's represented in this story. She's going to sing a song. It resonates with the plot, but it's not at all political. It's about a fairy palace where a woman dances in a veil and she seduces the king. And the king is like, oh, you're pretty. My wife doesn't understand me. We're not getting along so well. And he is completely seduced by her. But when she lifts the veil off her face, he realizes it, in fact, is his wife. Oh, one of those. One of those. This is a long opera. I'm afraid we have to cut several of the songs short. (laughs) If you ever have the opportunity to see this performed completely by an opera company, grab it, whether it's in French or in Italian.
but she's out there with the women and then Elizabeth comes out and joins the women and she enjoys their happy singing and soon Rodrigo appears and she greets him. She knows that he is a friend of Carlos and he gives her a letter and he ostentatiously says, this is a letter from your mother. Kind of a wink wink there because there's another letter slipped in which is a message, of course, from Don Carlos. Of course. So she gets the message from Don Carlos and she's trying to be regal, but it's upsetting to her because just as we saw in the first act, when she realizes it is her duty to say, yes, I will marry the king to help the people have peace, she also knows it is not okay to have a flirtation with her husband's son. Right. So she's not as on board with all of this behind-the-scenes stuff as Don Carlos is. It offends her honor. Right. But Don Rodrigo is a good friend to Don Carlos, and he's trying to do the right thing. So he gives the letter to her. And all the note says is that she must trust this man who delivered it. So with this note, it sort of eases the way. The ladies have departed. Don Carlos shows up, and he has an opportunity to speak alone with the queen because Rodrigo has has sort of helped to usher out the ladies to give them a moment alone and it's not a good thing to leave the queen alone because she has attendance for a reason so that some random stranger can't come up to her but that random stranger is the king's son and in that formalistic tone when he says I beg a favor of the queen she calls him yes my son what can I do and he's completely rattled by the fact that she calls him my son. Right. But what he asks of her is, please support my efforts to petition the king to gain control of the army in Flanders. So Don Carlos is trying to make good on his pledge that he made with his buddy. Right. And take charge of things in Flanders. And he knows that his father doesn't necessarily do what he says. So he asks the queen to please support him in his efforts to get his father, the king, to give him command of the army in Flanders. And he takes a moment to express his love and affection for her, but she's keeping him at a distance. But the worst possible thing that could happen with this situation, and where she's not really doing anything wrong, the king comes in, and the king is appalled to see that none of the queen's attendants are with her. And because he has made this loud noise and her page rushes in to say, the king is coming, the king is coming, the ladies of the court return and he says, who was supposed to be her lady today who was with her at all moments? And this one woman says, um, that was me. (laughs) And he's like, you're fired. Go back to (gasps) France on the spot. This is one of Elizabeth's childhood friends and she is exiled from Spain, sent back home to France. And there's a sweet song that Elizabeth sings to this countess, ending with, don't tell them in France how things are here. Don't tell them how you were treated and how I am treated. Oh. She's acknowledging that Philip is a bit headstrong, quick to temper, so she doesn't want anyone in France to know that she's dealing with a difficult husband. Yikes. Thank you. 
listening to Opera for Everyone, and this is Don Carlos by Giuseppe Verdi, and we've just heard from Elizabeth de Valois, the Queen of Spain, the bride of Philip II, saying goodbye to her childhood friend who has just been exiled for not doing her job and is being sent back to France because she left the Queen alone for a moment, which enraged Philip, and he said, okay, that's it, you're done, go back to France. And then what happens, Pat? Well, all the women leave and left on stage at this moment, we have the king and we have Don Rodrigo. We have a scene which is the heart of Schiller's message of human dignity and anti-absolutism. We find that the king has a soft spot in his heart for Rodrigo, Marquis de Posa. He appreciates what a good soldier he is. And Rodrigo takes his opportunity with this one-on-one audience with the king to say, King, I have just come from Flanders. The country, it was once so lovely, but it's now an ashen desert, a place of horror, a tomb. And he presses the case with the king to relent, to change his strategy with Flanders, to give them a little liberty so that the people will not have to suffer. And the king is going to counter, oh no, my tactics bring peace. We need conformity in order for there to be peace. And Rodrigo's point is, no, you don't need that. You need just rule, not absolute rule. You need to lead and show these people that you can lead them, not just rule them. Right. And Philip realizes he's giving Rodrigo the opportunity to speak to him in a way that no one ever does. And he even comments about it. And Rodrigo will raise his voice, give these people freedom, he tells them. And he says, no, this is not the way. And then he he remembers his affection for Rodrigo. And a couple of times towards the end of this, he will say, 
beware the Inquisition. Beware the Inquisition. Because the things that Rodrigo is asking for include tolerance of different forms of worship. Mm-hmm. And the king doesn't believe that's a good idea. But more importantly, he knows that if the Inquisition gets wind of Rodrigo's advocacy for Protestants, he's toast. Right. So he's also trying to protect him. Warn him. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you. 
Listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for a mainstream audience. It airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. Opera for Everyone is hosted by me, Keely Heron, and me, Pat Wright. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud and like our Facebook page, Opera for Everyone, where you can also send us a message. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoy the second half of today's episode. second half of today's episode of Opera for Everyone, where we are listening to Don Carlos by Giuseppe Verdi. I'm your host, Keely Heron. I'm Pat Wright. As we begin part two of today's episode, we would like to give some recognition to the performers who have provided us with the lovely recording that we are listening to today. This particular recording was made in 1985 at La Scala in Italy with Claudio Abado conducting. Our title role of Don Carlos is sung by Placido Domingo. His love interest, our leading lady, Elizabeth de Valois, is played by Katia Ricciarelli. His father, Philip II, King of Spain, is sung by Ruggiero Raimondi. Princess Eboli is sung by Lucia Valentini Terrani. Don Rodrigo, the Marquis de Posa, is sung by Leo Nucci, and the Grand Inquisitor is sung by Nikolai Giarov. And my apologies to any of the performers whose names I have pronounced incorrectly. 
I think it's time for the opera helmet quiz. Oh, bring us up to speed, Kelly. The opera helmet quiz. Okay. So Don Carlos is an opera by Giuseppe Verdi that premiered in the Paris Opera House in 1867. As such, it premiered in French. It is uh, set in 1559, primarily in Spain. However, the opera does open in France at the castle at, at Fontainebleau, where our lead female, Elizabeth de Valois, is out in the forest. And we know that she is destined to be Queen of Spain. And at the time of the play of the opera's opening, Philip's son, Don Carlos, is hiding in the woods as part of the delegation that has been sent from Spain to retrieve Elizabeth de Valois, who is the daughter of Henry II of France. And upon seeing Elizabeth, Don Carlos falls instantly in love, it's love at first sight, with Elizabeth, and is he's very pleased that this is his future wife. Moments later, Elizabeth discovers Don Carlos in the forest, and she says, what are you doing here? Who are you? And he's like, I'm a Spaniard. She's like, oh, you're part of that king's delegation. And he's like, yes, I am. And then some hijinks happen where he gives her a locket to say, this is what the prince looks like that you'll be marrying. And she says, oh, that's you. And he's like, yes, yes, that's me. So shortly after they profess their love for each other in this beautiful duet a member of carlos's delegation from spain comes in to say hooray we're all so excited that you're going to be married to philip ii to which elizabeth is you know not pleased she's surprised and she says well i thought i was going to be married to don carlos and they're like nope plans have changed now you're going to be married to philip ii And so after a brief moment of not really liking this news, she gets on board because she's a royal and she understands that she has to do what she has to do. She has to do her duty for her country. And uh, so then we go back to Spain where we discover that King Philip II is kind of grumpy and quick to temper and does things his own way. And... Elizabeth, being a dutiful royal, just kind of puts up with it. And then we go back to Spain, where we open on the tomb of Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, who has recently died in the past year or two, and that is our title character's grandfather. And so we're in this tomb, and we know that King Charles V had abdicated the throne and become a monk, and so was part of a monastery, and so he's buried in this monastery, his tomb is in this monastery, and so these monks are chanting and talking about how now that he's dead, he's returned to dust, and only God is in power. And so we surrender our wills to God. Don Carlos appears on the scene, he's sort of praying to his grandfather's ghost or whatever and then his good friend Don Rodrigo the Marquis de Poza shows up in the tomb also and says hey I came to find you here I've just come back from Flanders which is a stronghold of the Spanish throne in northern Belgium and he says I need you to intervene on behalf of the people of Flanders with your father to see if you can convince him to give them their freedom and allow them to practice their religion as they want. And because there's a great holy war happening between the Protestants and the Catholics, this is a big deal. And then they sing this big duet about brotherly love. And then Carlos goes to Elizabeth, who he's in love with, who is now his mother, basically, his stepmother, and says... 
I have a favor to ask of you. And she says, what is that? And he says, can you talk to the king and see if he can put me in charge of Flanders, of the army in Flanders? And she says, I guess. At which point the king is coming and because Don Rodrigo had run interference on behalf of Don Carlos prior to this conversation to have all of her ladies-in-waiting depart, which is very unusual for a queen to be alone. Because the king is approaching and he's going to find her alone with his son and that's not good, the page comes in and says, the king is coming, the king is coming. And then the king says, why are you alone? Oh, well, no. Then all the girls come back. All of her ladies-in-waiting come back, but it's very apparent to the king that this is all just like they're trying to cover something up. And he says, who was in charge here and who is supposed to be with my queen? And then one of the queen's best friends who are from back in France raises her hand and says that was me and he says okay you're out of here you're banished go back to France and then the queen sings this lovely song about France and her friend and how much she's gonna miss her but like say hello to France and by the way don't tell anybody what a jerk my husband is I don't want anybody to worry and then Don Rodrigo the Marquis de Poza talks to Philip and says hey Philip what do you think about letting the people of Flanders do their own thing in terms of religion that's really the right thing to do and the king's like well you have a point i kind of like you but also the inquisition and all that stuff so you better not be stirring that pot yeah he doesn't really even concede that rodrigo has a point he says my my toughness is what will bring peace being weak will not bring peace and also don't push the religion issue because you're going to lose that battle. Exactly. And that's the end of Act 2. So listening to you recap, it it's a reminder that this is a grand opera. This is <laughs> a, a complicated story. This is a big story. This is two of five acts. So my apologies also go out to the performers because we are only able to play a, a, a smaller portion than usual of this opera because it is such a a meaty long opera requiring so much explanation. So I think, you know, think of this opera for everyone the way people use opera for everyone often. Listen to it, get familiar with the opera, and then go see the opera in full because we are just giving little morsels. Little... We're just skating along the surface. We are, we are, because there is so much to this show. But a little orientation is helpful. Are you ready to start Act Three? I am. Well, Act 3, actually, it's very interesting. There's a scene which, in some of the shortening that Verdi did, he omitted this scene, but I'm going to explain it because with the scene omitted and the version of it that I watched had it omitted, it it makes Princess Ebeli seem more horrible than she needs to, although she is a little bit horrible. <laughs> it starts with a scene between Ebeli and Elizabeth where... There's going to be the ceremonial coronation of Philip the next day. So everyone's enjoying parties and this quiet moment among the two women, Elizabeth just says to Ebeli, I can't do parties anymore. My husband's spending the night in prayer. I wish to pray as well and not be part of the parties anymore. Here, you take my veil, make it look like the queen is present at these festivities as she should be, and I'm gonna leave and pray. And Ebeli says, oh, what fun. I get to be queen for a night. Yeah, that'll be great. This does not seem like it's going to end well. Well, if you don't know 
that it was Elizabeth's idea to disguise Ebeli as the queen, you're left to think that it was Ebeli's idea. Because, of course, what happens is she's out and about, and Don Carlos sees her and mistakes her for the queen. Oh, right. And Don Carlos begins to express his love and affection for her, and Ebeli is thinking to herself, I knew it, I knew he loved me. Because Oh, he she thinks that he knows it's her. Right. Oh. Right. Because she's super sweet on him. Oh, okay. Princess Evelyn says, I I want you to know, dear heart, you're in danger. There are forces at work plotting against you. Forces that don't want you to achieve your goals. Like being in charge of Flanders. She said, But I can save you because I love you. And he says, oh, you're so kind. You have the heart of an angel. And without it being terribly clear how this took place, she suddenly realizes that he, in fact, thought he was talking to the queen. And she gets very angry. She says, those words, you were saying them to someone else, weren't you? What a secret. You are in love with the queen, your mother. Oh, dear. Well, at just this moment, Rodrigo appears, and Rodrigo has caught this last little exchange, and he's like, <laughs> don't listen to it. He's a madman. Don't listen to any one thing he says. He's, he's talking nonsense. Never mind, but Ebeli is a woman scorned, and she says, you don't know my power. And Rodrigo says, well, you don't know mine. She goes, I know yours. You're the favorite of the king. So what? You don't know the power that I have. I will not be toyed with this way. I am your worst enemy. I hold this man's life in my hands. Wow. Okay. Well. Beware an offended woman. So she's angry. She's really yep. angry. Hell hath no fury. Well, that's that's what she's telling us. And then she, she sort of stops and she thinks and she says, you know what? I used to be impressed by the queen. I used to tremble before her, but she's just an imposter. She's pretending to be all saintly and full of duty and honor, but look at how daring she's been. Look at what she's willing to do with her son. And she's disgusted at her own former reverence for the queen. And at this point, Rodrigo has had enough, and he pulls out a dagger. Carlos intervenes. What? Yeah, I know. (laughs) Carlos intervenes and stops Rodrigo from doing any harm to Princess Ebeli. And she continues to get out her anger. And there is a trio with the three of them where it's just all of this emotion coming forth and fabulous anger from this wonderful mezzo-soprano. Rodrigo, I'm not going to be easy to 
first scene of the third act. Well, so Pat, we're pretty far along into this grand opera in France that requires a ballet, so... Ah, we've already cut the ballet. (laughs) It was in the last scene. Verdi cut that pretty much immediately after the initial run in Paris. Oh, I see. Okay, so he presented it in Paris. It had a ballet, and then he's like, now that I'm not doing this as a grand opera in Paris, like, whatever. Yeah, well, also the Italian audiences did not expect operas to be so very long, and that was a pretty easy thing for him to cut. It was also some of the last music he wrote for the deadline to get this presented for its premiere. Yeah, that happened after the the veils were switched. Oh, so that was during the party. Exactly. That was part of the party. That was part of what the guests were enjoying. I see. Okay. All right. So scene two of act three is when we get our spectacle, our tableau vivant. Oh, right. And our spectacle is really, it's two things. It is this entire scene of everyone being dressed and ready for the coronation of Philip II, and it is also the auto de fe. The auto de fe. This demonstration of faith. Ah, demonstration of faith. You don't actually even have to translate this expression. It is used in English to describe these events that took place during the Spanish Inquisition. The expression of faith is in fact in execution of heretics. Oh, oh, it's it. So auto de fe describes actually executing people. Yes. Wow. Okay. And the typical manner of execution was burning them alive at the stake. Ah, yes. Yeah, so this, okay. So this is the Spanish Inquisition. Yes. Do you want to say anything about the Spanish Inquisition? Just that, you know, you always hear about the Spanish Inquisition, but... You know, if you're me, you never really, like, take time to figure out what exactly the Spanish Inquisition was. I'm here to help. (laughs) Yes. Yes, you are, Pat. The Spanish Inquisition was begun by the joint monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella, the monarchs who oversaw the final expulsion of the... Muslim influence. Which happened in 1492. Well, in 1478 was when they established this... Inquisition. It, it had a longer name, but it became known as the Spanish Inquisition. And in 1478, of course, this is before Protestantism even exists, because Martin mm-hmm. Luther doesn't nail his 95 theses on the uh, on the church door until 1517. So they begin this as an attempt to purify for Roman Catholicism Spain, and it was primarily aimed at the Jews and the Muslims worth noting that under Muslim rule in Spain, Christians and Jews were accorded a special status. They weren't equal to Muslims because because that's not how the world worked then, but they were considered to be people of the book. And so they were, they were not persecuted as the Jews and Muslims were persecuted under the Spanish Inquisition, which was started by Ferdinand and Isabella. They had a lot of goals, those two, The way that Ferdinand and Isabella believed that they could strengthen Spain was number one, by combining their two territories, Aragon and Castile, and they believed it was absolutely essential to unite everyone under the single faith of Roman Catholicism. They also 
were completely behind this age of overseas exploration, most notably financing Columbus's voyage. Right. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Right. And they thought they were funding him to find trade routes of their own to the Indies where the spices were, but that's not how it worked out. We know the story of Columbus. <laughs> the result was, though, the Spanish Empire is founded in the Americas, particularly in, in Mexico and Peru and the gold and silver mines that just filled to bulging the Spanish treasury. Right. What they started is part of what defines Spain really up until the tide turns in 1588 with the defeat of the Spanish Armada. But I race ahead. <laughs> Spanish Inquisition. I thought you were going to quote Monty Python to tell you the truth. <laughs> uh, well, I'm not a Monty Python fan. It may surprise you to know. Ah, okay. Well, I imagine some of our listeners are, are thinking of their tagline. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. However, if you were actually in Spain at this time, it was a frightening institution. In the opera, the Grand Inquisitor, who will appear later on, and the institution of the Inquisition itself is set up in contest with the political authority of the king. In fact, as I mentioned with the monarchs who founded it, the Inquisition was under political leadership because Ferdinand and Isabella wanted purity of Roman Catholicism after all the time that the Muslims had been in charge. And starting with Charles V, with the rise of Protestantism in Europe, the Protestants also become a... Target. Yeah, they also become a target for the Inquisitors. Jews and Muslims, by the way, under Ferdinand and Isabella, were given the option to convert. They could convert or leave. They didn't, they weren't necessarily executed. They just, they wanted purity of their country. Right. They didn't require blood for that. But if those people converted because they didn't want to leave their homeland, the Inquisition checked around to see if their conversion was real. Right because people were suspected of saying the words, but not... Actually changing their behaviors. Exactly. It's long and complicated, and, and as you can imagine, people could get rid of rivals and enemies by denouncing them to the Inquisition. Right. And the Inquisition was incredibly powerful, but that was with the blessing of the monarchy. Right. So, as part of the spectacle that is the coronation of Philip II in this opera. There's an auto de fe. They begin this scene by leading in the condemned, and they have special white and red clothing that they wear, and they're in a way dehumanized. They don't have any of the dignity of the people who are in the crowd, because they've, after all, they've been condemned to death as heretics. Right. They are considered by one and all to be unfaithful, bad people, traitors to God. So people are okay with the spectacle that is going to be their massacre. So the people who are going to be the victims of the Inquisition in the auto de fe are led off stage at this point, and out from the church comes Philip II in all his finery on his day of his grand coronation. At a certain point, we're going to get our tableau vivant that I talked about. Mm -hmm. It's just going to look like a painting because everyone's there. The people are dressed beautifully, and the stage is simply filled to bulging. I imagine it's a fun thing to do if you're a, a director. Yeah, of course. A lot of work, but fun. So during the presentation of the heretics, as well as the point when Philip comes out in his finery, we have our grand chorus singing joyfully. They're singing quite joyfully. 
And in the midst of all of this celebration, Don Carlos comes in with six darkly dressed men, and these are deputies from Flanders. And in the midst of this coronation celebration, he goes before his father and he says, I need you to listen to these men, father. This is so important. And the king wants nothing to do with an unhappy segment. No, he's like, I'm busy. Exactly. And, And Carlos says, no, you have to give me command so I can do right by the Flemish people. He's trying to live up to what his friend Rodrigo said. And he gets so hot under the collar about this, Carlos pulls out his sword on the king in front of everyone. And Don Rodrigo essentially holds his head in his hand like my friend what are you doing this is not the way you don't bodily threaten the king but carlos is this is our one little glimpse that maybe he's not thinking straight yeah he's a little unhinged and the king will tell his men disarm my son and they're all like well we're gonna disarm the prince like this is very awkward and rodrigo steps up he's the one who has the the courage with don carlos brandishing his sword he takes the sword away from don carlos yeah and he ceremonially hands it to the king and right there on the spot philip takes the sword taps him on both shoulders and he says marquis you are now a duke let's carry on with the celebration and they take away carlos who will shortly be seen in prison But now we have to finish off this grand spectacle because it's time for the flames. It's up to how the director wants to present it, but the people are to be impaled and burned alive. Oh my gosh. And the version I saw was pretty gruesome. It was shown as if in a distance, but there were flames and it was pretty horrific as you would imagine such a spectacle would be. And the people sing, this is a day of joy. Ending this scene, there's a voice from heaven, a soprano, who sings, Fly up to the Lord, poor souls. Come feel the peace near the throne of God. Forgiveness. Hmm. So it's a little bit, I'm guessing it's a little bit of Schiller or Verdi. I'm so sorry I haven't read the Schiller play, who is, there's a criticism, clearly, of what's being done with the Inquisition. And so they they soften it just this tiny amount by having this heavenly voice offer comfort to the victims. Yeah, mercy. Well, that was a big scene. And we're ready for Act 4. Act 4 begins in a very intimate setting. It's the King's Study. And this is a song which I've heard called the greatest bass aria out there. She does not love me. Oh, Philip knows. He knows. And it's it's a little bit pitiful how this man getting on in years sings when he realizes she does not love him.
So I know that Philip is supposed to be kind of a baddie, but the way that he sings that, I feel kind of sorry for him. He is heartbroken because he realizes the woman he truly loves does not love him. Then an announcement is made that the Grand Inquisitor is here to see the king. And for dramatic effect, this elderly man is played as a blind character. And he is a bass with a big voice also. And we get these two men with great power, the Grand Inquisitor Mm -hmm. and the King, in conversation. And we realize that Philip has asked him to come. And he says, I need your help, Holy Father. Please tell me, will you forgive me if I must punish my son? If I must have my son killed? What? Well, his son drew a sword on him. His son defied him in front of all of his people. Right. His son wants to go rogue. His son asked for this command of Flanders. The father had said no, and the son would not take no for an answer. Right. It's problematic. True. Any guess what this Grand Inquisitor will tell the king? I would think that the Grand Inquisitor would be in favor of killing Don Carlos because Don Carlos was proposing freedom of religion for the people of Flanders. And the Grand Inquisitor isn't about that. And guess how he tells the king he's in favor of it? By offering to kill him himself. No, by saying, well, God sacrificed his own son to save us all. Yeah, there you go. It's, It's chilling. Solve your problem and appeal to your vanity. Always a good process. Right, play the role of God with my blessing. And Philip still is hesitant. He says, but... But it's, it's not right to kill your son. And the Inquisitor is essentially saying, sometimes a guy's got to do what a guy's got to do. He says, but I have something more important to talk to you about. Here, a good friend of yours, a man you trust, is very dangerous. And you must root him out because he is truly a threat to our faith and to our unity of faith. Don Rodrigo, the Marquis de Posa. Exactly. Yeah. And the Inquisitor is telling the king, you need to deal with this man. Yeah, I mean, because Don Carlos might be threatening him with a sword, but the person whose idea it was was the Marquis de Posa. That's right. So the Grand Inquisitor has said what he needs to say, and he departs. Just after that, in bursts Elizabeth in her night clothes, shouting for justice. I need justice, sire. I've not been treated well in your court all along, and now someone's stolen my jewel box. It has my jewels and other important things in it. Oh. And he talks to her for a little while, and then he sort of steps out of the way. He goes, Madam, is this what you're looking for? And her jewel box is sitting on his desk. And she's a little confused. And out of it, guess what he pulls? The locket. The picture of his son. Yep. And you realize that that was what he was holding in his hands while he was singing, She Doesn't Love Me. Ah. The fact that the son's picture was with her precious items. Right was proof to him that it's all been a sham. She's been doing her duty, but he doesn't have her heart. Right. And she's upset to be accused in this way. She said, Sire, I've done nothing wrong. I have not betrayed you in any way. Right. And she's getting a little upset that she's being accused of infidelity when it's been so much work to fulfill her duty properly, which she's done. Yeah. She even explains, look, I was originally promised to be married to him. This was given to me when that was the case. Yeah. He's not interested in hearing that. He's heartbroken and he's angry. And he yells at her and he calls her an adulterous wife and she faints. Yeah, because that's a big allegation in that situation. Well, to be adulterous 
when your husband's the king is to commit treason. So yes, it's sure. a big deal. <laughs> mm-hmm. But she falls in a faint and Rodrigo comes in and Rodrigo scolds the king. Sir, you command so many people. Why is it the only person you cannot control is yourself? Oh, wow. He's bold. He is bold. And Again, given the given the conversation that the king just had with the Grand Inquisitor, he's treading on thin ice. Yes, but he is this idealistic character who holds all his values and ideals and demonstrates them to all of us. Right. Philip steps back and he says to himself, well, maybe I did go a bit too far with her. And Elizabeth comes to, and she says to herself, I'm in a foreign land. My only release will be when I go to heaven. So she's, her mind has moved on. Yeah. Because she had this cordial relationship with her husband and she sees that even that is gone now. Right. So the king leaves, Rodrigo goes out with him, and Ebeli is there with the queen. And she says, Madam, please pardon a guilty woman. At this moment, we learn that Ebeli is the one who stole the jewel box and gave it to the king. Oh. And Elizabeth is ready to give her pardon, show mercy, and not be angry with her. And then she tells her, oh no, there's one other thing I need your forgiveness on. I'm your husband's mistress. What? And that's just a little too far. She asked, she said, I seduced the king. And Elizabeth is, all right then, pack up your things. You need to either go to a cloister or go into exile. Goodbye. And she leaves. And then Ebeli gets her big number, which we'll hear just a little bit of here. Oh, fatal gift. And she sings a song about not only her sorrow at having to leave court and her good friend, the queen, who she adores, but she sings a song about, oh, fatal gift. God made me too beautiful. Oh, God. No end of trouble. She's a real piece of work. I curse you, my beauty. Ugh. And right at the end of Ebeli's song, she pulls herself together because she realizes her life at court is over. But she says, but I've got one day. I don't have to leave till tomorrow. I will save dearest Don Carlos, who's languishing in prison at this moment. I can't let him be punished for treason. I will save him. And that's how she ends her song.
listening to Opera for Everyone, and on today's episode, we are listening to Don Carlos by Giuseppe Verdi. And we've just heard from Princess Eboli, who is a very odd but intriguing character. And Femme she is, fatale. Yes, she's <laughs> very beautiful, and she's sung a song about her fatal gift being that she's just so freaking beautiful. But she's going to rise above it and yeah. save Don Carlos. Even though I'm just so beautiful, I'm going to I'm going to persevere. <laughs> and I'm going to save Don Carlos before I'm shut away in a convent for the rest of my life. Yeah. So, the next scene in act 4, scene 2, we are in the prison cell where Carlos is being held. Mm. And when you're the favorite of the king, as Don Rodrigo is, you can go ahead and Go and visit your friend who's in prison. And that's exactly what he does. And we have quite a lengthy scene with the two of them. Don Carlos is listening to his friend comfort him, but he's also listening to his friend talk about the nobility of the cause of saving Flanders. Remembering that Rodrigo is this idealistic character who is there to represent what is good and what is right. The more that we talk about this, the more I just feel like it's kind of silly. Don Carlos is going to die over this. That he's Show's not championing, over yet. championing the Marquis de Posa, Don Rodrigo's cause. Like, oh, Flanders, we've got to save Flanders. There's, there's more to come. It might not okay. turn out. Okay. How you think it's leading up to turn out? I'll there, be patient. I'll be patient. There might be a little change in what happens here. So Rodrigo starts saying some interesting things like, this is for me the supreme day. Death has its charms, Carlos, if the one you die for is the right one. And he's like, well, why are you talking about death? I'm the one in prison. Rodrigo says, listen, my friend, I have deflected the king's vengeance. They now consider me the traitor. I got some papers from you, remember? papers about plans for Flanders, I took them from you so they would not be on you and they wouldn't be found and you would not be tried with that kind of evidence. And I took the evidence for myself. And now I am the one who has a price on my head because the Inquisition is after me and the king doesn't like what I'm doing and they will come for me. And I know this is my last day on earth. And just about the time that he gets all this out, a shot rings out and Rodrigo is shot and he falls to the ground. What? Well, it's opera, so he's got a couple more songs to sing, but he's mortally wounded. Okay. And there are these expressions of affection and dedication to the cause of helping out Flanders. And Rodrigo says, I will die for you. And in his final song with Don Carlos, Rodrigo will say, I die with a happy soul.
So Rodrigo is dead. Don on the Carlos, floor. Mm-hmm. On the floor of the prison where mm-hmm. Don Carlos is imprisoned for brandishing a sword on his father's coronation day. Not the best move. <laughs> no, not the best move. But Rodrigo has said he, he, he will die a happy man because he's dying for the cause. Because he's made a sacrifice of himself so that the cause will benefit from Don Carlos's attention. And at this moment, the king and his retinue come into the prison cell. And the king has a sword in hand, and he hands it to Don Carlos, and he says, Son, take back your sword. I thought you were the problem, but it turns out he was the traitor, pointing at Don Rodrigo. Yeah, and you were just like a chump. And Don Carlos is beside himself with grief and with anger, and he says, Stand back. The blood from his death has blown into your face. God marks your forehead with the sign of his wrath. And so he's angry and he's venting his anger once again at his father. And Don Carlos says, you no longer have a son. And he points at all the guys with him. Choose from among these butchers a son that you long for. So he's not really taking advantage of the scene that Don Rodrigo set up for him. Yeah, no, he's pretty much blowing that up. Yeah, and he, and he even says king of murder and fear. And he gestures at his friend's dead body. And he throws himself on top of Don Rodrigo's corpse. And Philip has regret. Because after all, he did love Don Rodrigo. And he really regrets the fact that he allowed this to happen. Mm-hmm. He allowed Don Rodrigo to be killed. And all of a sudden, the alarm bell rings. And there's commotion and people. And one of the officials says, the people are in a frenzy. They're calling for the Infanta, for Don Carlos. And Philip faces down this angry mob. He's like, strike, strike me now. Just go ahead, do it. Slit the throat of an old man and trample over my bleeding body to do homage to my son. Because they have come to free Don Carlos from this tyrannical king. Ah. And right there in the thick of things is Eboli. She turns to the queen and says, See, I loved him. I raised the people hurrying from the street to save his life. Farewell, queen. The cloister awaits me. <laughs> She's a- and at this point, the Grand Inquisitor comes in and he yells to everyone, to your knees. And he has to repeat it several times. Oh, sacrilegious people, prostrate yourselves to the one who God protects to your knees he's telling them they need to kneel and show homage to the king yeah because he's the representation of god on earth exactly and the people comply and everyone kneels and the grand inquisitor raises up the king and the king says glory be to god and at this moment ever so briefly you see the queen make a gesture towards ebeli that she's been forgiven now for her efforts ah because she saved don carlos yeah. Yeah. And act four. Right. And there's one more act. This is a long opera. This is a long opera. <laughs> this is a grand opera. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. So act four ends. Don Carlos is saved. The people are respecting their king. Evelie's forgiven. She's still going after the convent. Yes. And act five, we're back by the tomb of Charles V. Mm-hmm. at the monastery of San Just. Elizabeth has quite a long 
aria here. Okay. She is alone on stage with the tomb of Charles V, and she will sing, You who knew the emptiness of the vanity of this world. In other words, you, you understood. You retired from public life because you understood what really mattered was what you were going to find in your communion with God. This is an amazing piece of music. It's an amazing piece of vocalizing. And I'm just going to commend it to you when you see the opera. <laughs> because after she concludes all of her thoughts about the illusions of this world and that true peace is to be found in heaven with God, as Charles V knew, Don Carlos is going to enter and see her. And he's going to have a... It's, it's actually an amazing... Reconciliation is not exactly the word, but they each have determined now what their purpose in life is. And they've mm. moved from that initial belief that it was for them to be in love and share their lives together, mm -hmm. that they each have a duty and a goal. And Elizabeth will maintain her dignity. She will do nothing that breaks the trust that's given to her in her position and she's focusing on the life hereafter. And Don Carlos is going to remain true to the oath that he swore to his great friend. And so he sees her, and it is more like a meeting between a mother and a son. Hmm. Elizabeth refers to Rodrigo because she respects the dignity of this man. And Don Carlos says, yes, in Flanders, I will erect a monument to him finer than any king ever had. And Elizabeth replies, the flowers of paradise will rejoice with his ghost. And Don Carlos shares with her his dream that a suffering people greet him as a savior and that he's able to save them. And it's a beautiful dream. By the way, he is not given the command. And in fact, in the real life of this first son of a king, he behaves so erratically and he does threaten the king he is ultimately taken into custody and he dies in prison. Hmm. But in this story, they sing this a beautiful song where they say farewell till we meet in a better place. So they believe they will come together in their love in heaven, mm -hmm. but they've got a job to do here on earth and they are both committed to doing it.
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, and on today's episode, we're listening to Don Carlos by Giuseppe Verde, and we've just heard our leading lady, Queen Elizabeth, and her stepson, Don Carlos, saying farewell. Yes, in fact, they even end with, farewell, my son, farewell, mother. They've gotten comfortable with those roles, Mm -hmm. even though they're the same age. By the way, the real life character of each of these Mm -hmm. will die within just a couple of months of each other, both at the age of 23. Really? Wow. Well, he was always in ill health and he was taken into custody by his father. And she just, it's what kills most women in that period of time. Childbirth. Yes. In fact, in in this case, it was a a miscarriage, I think I read, but yes. Hmm. And that's part of what some of the rumors were about this great love between them. The fact that they were the same age and they both died very young very close in time to each other mm-hmm. and she was she was very kind to him he was he was not a well young man and she actually showed kindness to him but but not I think like the opera shows <laughs> so we feel like we're done but we're not done because at this moment when they've said this tender goodbye in rushes Philip and the Grand Inquisitor and a whole bunch of courtiers and Philip says yes forever say goodbye forever because there must be a double sacrifice i will do my duty an inquisitor comes in and he says yes the inquisition will do its duty also so the forces are descending on them and don carlos is really getting backed into a corner and don carlo just screams god will avenge me this tribunal of blood will be crushed by his hand and then you hear the deep voice Remember the monk who was angry in the beginning of Act yes. Two? Mm-hmm. Do you remember what Don Carlos said about that voice? It was like the ghost of his grandfather, Charles V. Right. Out of the base of the tomb emerges what appears to be to everyone there, Charles V. And he sings just as in Act Two, my son, the sorrows of the earth will follow us even here. The peace for which your heart hopes is found only in God. And the Inquisitor, who's blind, but whose hearing is very good, says it's the voice of the Emperor. And everyone says, it's Charles V. And Philip yells, my father. And it's very confusing to all because maybe he didn't die. Maybe it's his ghost. But it doesn't matter because this figure grabs Don Carlos puts him in his cape and saves him, retreating back into where the tomb is kept. Huh. And it ends with the choir of monks singing, as they did when we first heard them in the second act, Charles V, the august emperor, is nothing more than dust and ashes. End opera. And I do have to note... This is the libretto, but it's not how it always is presented because directors can make their own artistic choices with what they show on stage. And the version that I watched had Don Carlos being stabbed and merely visited by the monk at the end, not saved. Because it's an unsatisfying ending. What's happened? Is he being saved by the monk? Is he being brought to his death by the monk? It's a little unclear. Yeah, well... And that's the end of Don Carlos, the opera.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I'm Keely Heron. And I'm Pat Wright. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. And like our Facebook page, Opera for Everyone, where you can also send us a message. We know that opera can be challenging. But everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. That's why our mission is to make Opera opera for for everyone. everyone.